Yeah, so it's been a, quite a banner year for China, uh, militarily, commercially, scientifically uh, in space. So it's really hard to, to kind of nail it down. But I'll stick to the uh, the military aerospace. It's, that tends to be more of our forte. Uh, you know, and we had, uh, you know, the FOBs, I think, is probably the top of the top of the list. Um, but uh, certainly a lot of other things going on as well. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey there, Downlink listeners. This is the last episode of 2023. And as it is also the end of the month, we're going to take a look at this year's most important technology and policy trends in China's space programs, civil, commercial, and military. In the past 12 months, we've seen the leadership of the People's Liberation Army's rocket forces arrested and suffer an untimely death. We've seen the SpaceX Super Heavy Space Launch System live rent-free in the minds of Chinese strategists, planners, and anonymous opinion writers. We've also seen China demonstrate new technologies and capabilities, which can be used for peaceful uses or aggressive behavior. And just this week, China unveiled a war gaming system for military operations and training that has reportedly already been used for a covert operation. There's a lot to get to. And of course, we're going to take a look ahead at 2024. We're doing this with the Downlinks China Space Hands, Namrita Goswami and Brendan Mulvaney. Here's our conversation. Hello, Nami. Brendan, thank you both so much for joining me for what's the last episode of the year. Thank you for having me, Laura. Great. Thanks for having me. It's a great way to close up the year. Now, before we jump into the top development in China's space and defense program for this year, 2023, please, let's take a moment to briefly introduce yourselves. And Nami, why don't you go first? Sure, Laura. So my name is Namrita Goswami, and I teach space policy at the Thunderbird School of Global Management, Arizona State University. And I co-authored a book called Scramble for the Skies, The Great Power Competition to Control the Resources of Outer Space. Great to be here. And you recently had a piece in The Diplomat that was also an end-of-the-year roundup on all the developments in China as well, right? Yes, yes. It just came out uh, last week. And Brendan, take a moment, introduce yourself, remind everybody what it is that you do and where you do it. Sure, thanks. So I'm Brendan Mulvaney. I'm a retired Marine. I was an Olmsted Scholar in uh, Shanghai, China at Fudan University. Uh, and uh, and now I run the U.S. Department of the Air Force's China Aerospace Studies Institute, where we like to say we study, quote, everything that flies. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you both so much. So let's kick off the conversation for this end of the year roundup. And first, what I want to know is, what is your top technological development coming out of China, space and defense? And Brendan, why don't you start us off? Yeah, so it's been a quite a banner year for China, uh, militarily, commercially, scientifically uh, in space. So it's really hard to, to kind of nail it down, but I'll stick to the uh, the military aerospace since that tends to be more of our forte, uh, you know. And we had uh, you know the FOBs. I think is probably the top of the 
top of the list, um, but uh, certainly a lot of other things going on as well. Well, explain um, to those who may not know what a FOBS is. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, yeah, the acronyms, they come naturally to those of us here in the military. So that's the Fractional Orbital Bombardment System. Uh, basically, what is it? Something goes up in space, uh, doesn't quite make a full rotation, and then comes back down. Um, and so it's not technically a satellite, but uh, it has characteristics that are different than, uh, say, a traditional uh, intercontinental ballistic missile or things that you're thinking about like that. So it's just a it's a new concept, uh, potentially could deliver a payload uh, in uh, a whole brand new direction and variety of ways than uh, than we're traditionally used to and certainly anything that we were worried about in the Cold War. And what was it that's new, though, about the FOBS system this year coming out of China? Because they've also did this sort of FOBS testing also in 2022, I believe, and possibly in 2021. No? So it's just uh, it's a continuation and it's really just a, a problem that we haven't faced, uh, at least, uh, you know, technologically for a long time. Uh, and the fact is that uh, China is going to use it in new and different ways uh, than the United States has been thinking about for a long time. So it's really the the act that we have to continue to think about and update, uh, you know, both uh, Space Force and Space Command have to update their thinking about what does it potentially mean for the United States and our allies and partners uh, in the future should China decide to weaponize it. And Nami, what's the top technological development for you? So for me, the top technological development is China's decision to turn their Long March 9 rocket reusable. So that decision was taken in April of this year. And so for your audience, the Long March 9 in its original version was an expendable rocket that could lift about 150 metric tons to low Earth orbit. And so this year on China's Space Flight Day, which is April 24th, the day they first flew their first satellite into space in 1970, they took the decision to make it reusable. So I think that is a game changer for China. Uh, the fact that they actually announced that this year. So that really stood out to me from the civilian perspective. And from the military perspective, I think their continuous experimentation of their space plane, they just recently did one again, uh, has major implications because of the fact that we don't really know what a space plane consists of. We cannot see inside it. They released six satellites uh, they could have a robotic arm. They could have co-orbital uh, anti-satellite capability. So that, I think, is major in terms of military technological development. Yeah, and I think those six different satellites are orbiting in different orbital planes as well, no? Yes, as far as I can see from the open source, uh, the news is very recent. But as I think through the implications of that, you know, if they want to do intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance with those six satellites, they can look at a particular satellite. You might know that one is coming at you, but you will not know if three or four are coming at you. So uh, so if they can do it across different LEO orbit, uh, orbital planes, that would be actually extremely interesting as to how the U.S. is going to view that. Because, And then the other thing about that is that if they want to dazzle a particular satellite. Is that what they're experimenting? Are they trying to see that they can actually do something militarily? And finally, I think what is significant from a strategic and military point of view is that China can actually do this. So one of their reasons to continuously demonstrate a space plane capability is to also tell the U.S. that, hey, we have this capability and you do not know what we carry inside. So unlike a satellite. 
So moving on then, what, and this is for you, Nami, to kick off, what is your top policy development in the China space and defense program? I think my top policy development in China's space and defense program is their policy decision this year to extend their Tiangong space station. I say that because that's something that China has been hoping to accomplish, an ability to maintain a much larger platform in low Earth orbit with the end goal that such space end-to-end logistics system can be utilized for their the entirety of low Earth orbit to cislunar space. So the fact that they announced it, the fact that they are talking about having different docking platforms with the Tiangong space station, I think is a big policy development in the Chinese perspective from my point of view, because that connects to their next goal, where in which they want to build a large space-based solar power satellite using that particular know-how. Let's just dive into the particular know-how just to, to bring everybody else along. But the know-how that you're talking about would include in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing, correct? Yes. And so if you look at their uh, Tiangong space station, the there are three experiments that they want to accomplish from the question you asked. One is uh, in-situ construction. Uh, how do you construct a particular large platform? So they still think, and Chinese scientists point this out, that they are not as capable as they want to be. And this particular Tiangong space construction in space is a very critical demonstration of capability. The second thing that they want to accomplish with this particular large platform is their end-to-end space logistics system, which includes an indigenous cargo spacecraft that can dock, the ability to sustain humans, and then finally, the ability to conduct in-situ resource manufacturing, as well as, for example a concept like power beaming that they're focusing on and actually announced a major program this year uh, in terms of space-based solar power satellites as well. And Brendan, what's your top policy development coming out of China this year? Yeah, so I think the biggest announcement for policy-wise is the plan to build their mega constellation, right? So we've seen uh, how, uh, how much it is affecting the real world, both on the civilian side, but certainly on the military side. Uh, you know, Starlink and uh, Amazon is hot on their heels. Uh, and so China has definitely decided to get into the game. So I think this signals a, a definite marker that they're going to put down said hey, that, you know, they're not going to be left behind. They absolutely are going to play in this field. Uh, and both the, the commercial applications of that, as well as the military crossover are going to be uh, hugely significant to how we go forward uh, competing with China uh, across all aspects. I think that was probably probably the single biggest announcement they made this year on a policy. And, you know, as I remind people, China's got a system uh, that they can take a policy and see it through over the course of, uh, you know, a number of years, whereas uh, those of us in democracies uh, tend to have changes of government, which, you know, uh, policies come and go and importance uh, waxes and wanes. But uh, we should make no mistake that the Chinese are going to be going after this particular mega constellation with the uh, with all levers of power uh, that are available to the state and the party. And and just explain, though, as well, why do they want their own mega constellation, right? I mean, SpaceX and Starlink and all that, I mean, they could just pay SpaceX and use Starlink. You know, why is it important for them to want their own? Yeah, so one, uh, I won't, wouldn't put it past them to, you know, try to uh, try to leverage some of the commercial capabilities that are out there. 
Uh, China's perfectly happy doing things above board and legally and purchasing commercial uh, systems and services wherever they can. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, as we saw with Mr. Musk, uh, if you don't control it when the chips are down, you may not have uh, the ability to use it in ways you want, right? So he has decided uh, not to make certain targeting solutions available to certainly to the Russians, but also to the Ukrainians at the end of the day. Uh, and China feels that a sovereign capability is going to be absolutely necessary. Uh, China sees space as the, the new strategic high ground uh, and believes that that's uh, potentially where the next conflict is going to be resolved uh, is through the uh, the ability to control space. And they absolutely don't want to uh, be relying on anyone outside of uh, the PRC for those capabilities. Laurie, if I can hmm. add to that. So, uh, so that the one thing that this year stood out in connection to what Breton said is that uh, China announced that it had completed a high-orbit satellite internet system about 36,000 kilometers above Earth, and that consisted of the satellites. They actually named the satellites for you. It's satellite 16, 19, and 26, and that offers coverage uh, throughout China, parts of Russia, Southeast Asia, India, and the Indian Ocean. And so what is interesting is that this particular system is envisioned, uh, in, and it's called the high-orbit satellite internet which could exceed about 500 uh, GP, GBPS. And connected to that was, the, that was the fact that Huawei launched a 5G smartphone that utilized that particular satellite internet. And Chinese experts now claim that this particular high-orbit geo-based satellite internet would not require as many satellites as, say, Starlink, and will actually be able to cover a much wider area. So you can see that they're developing not just Leo-based constellations, but are also looking at a constellation which might be smaller than their 13,900 satellite constellation they're hoping to achieve by 2030, but actually also a high-orbit uh, satellite constellation. So I thought that was, again, something that stood out for me in 2023. You know, I saw those stories as well. And I have to say, it did bring up one question for me with the high orbit internet capability. You know, I think it's one thing to to have communication between satellites and in higher orbits, et cetera, et cetera. But when you are in a higher orbit, there is a latency issue, as in it takes more time for that information to go up to that high orbit and then to go back down and be received at the ground. And I I didn't actually see anything that answered that question as in will it actually give the same speed? Because I just don't think physics supports that. But I could be wrong. I mean, <laughs> I am just a journalist here. I'm just reading. No, I think you have a point there. But you also have to remember that if you look at China's policy decision, uh, if I may use another policy thing that stood out to me, it is to build a diversified, resilient space structure, which they call new infrastructure. And so in that context, while you build a high orbit satellite internet system uh, that could build in certain requirements that they have, they are not getting away from their national satellite constellation, which is a low Earth orbit based constellation system. So the idea is that the high orbit system is not the only thing they're building, that they're, but what they're focusing on as with their launch structure, is to have a diversified platform so that they are not just ignoring high-orbit constellations as well. And that's what I hear the Chinese scientists talking about, that we shouldn't concentrate on just one Leo-based constellation structure and depend on it and make it our only life support. We need to have multiple varied constellation structures. That's the, that's the reasoning. 
Whereas when it comes to speed in their perception, their uh, low Earth orbit constellation is their unique selling proposition. uh, And they hope to compete with Starlink. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I I would just say that, uh, you know, Western commercial companies are well aware of that and they have some really interesting ways that they're trying to get after this latency issue, right? So it's not just uh, it's not just that, uh, you know, Geo is further away than Leo. Uh, it's all the processing capabilities and also maybe uh, hopping through some of those those Leo ones. We were at uh, the SAE put on a great MilsatCom conference this, this year in London, uh, and it's really, really impressive what some of the commercial companies are doing uh, to kind of get at that. And that means that that technology is going to be available uh, for the Chinese to, to get their hands on and, you know, leverage as best they can as well. When I've been looking back at the various developments this year in policy and technology, and very much though in policy, I'd have to say, I, I, I've been seeing two thematic priorities, um, one of them being resilient infrastructure. And that goes to what you were talking about, Nami. And I, I want you to kind of, you know, key in on this when we're talking about, you know, uh, launch as well as uh, satellite internet. Uh, but that also means fast end-to-end capacity, manufacturing, logistics for civil, commercial, and military space operations. And the other thing that I think that perhaps hasn't been given enough of a look at is the capital efficiency that they seem to be really getting interested in um, trying to try, trying to create. And what I mean by that is... You know, if you've been reading the other stories about China, you'll notice that their economy has been downgraded by Moody's, right? Their ability to pay back their national debt has been downgraded into sort of, you know, a more negative territory. Uh, There are some issues with um, some real estate companies uh, basically way over leveraging what they have to pay their debts, in fact, not being able to pay their debts and therefore not being able to deliver on the housing products that they had promised to uh, middle-class Chinese folks. And that creates some social instability. So what I kind of noticed is that there seems to be a real drive to do things faster and for less money. And these seem to be two, you know, mutually reinforcing priorities. And you can see them sort of baked into almost every aspect of China's space technology development activities um, because it's not it's no longer just about getting there, but about how you get there. And I, I wonder if if Nam, if you want to give us an example of that. Yeah, sure. So I mean in a sense, uh, this is what both China and India are hoping to achieve. Uh, developing economies with very ambitious space programs, but to do it cost effectively. And the fact that India successfully launched the moon at a very low cost is a competition for China as well. And India is competing at different levels of launch structure, which China wants to occupy in the international global launch market. So there is a reason why they want to do this. And what is so interesting is that if, and so the example I'll give you before I answer the question of, uh, you know, the tactically uh, advanced launch systems that they have, is that companies like Landspace, uh, which is a Chinese commercial space company, uh, which successfully launched the world's first methane liquid oxygen rocket, is promising to bring down the launch of one kg to space to about, if I remember right, to about 
1500 or $1,700. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I remember. So that's a huge game changer. I mean, China's Long March 9 promises that in the next 10 years. But this is something very interesting because here is a successful commercial company doing that. And then, of course, as you know, China is not just investing in state-funded capability. But, for example, iSpace uh, in November of this year, a Chinese space par- startup, tested its reusable uh, Hyperbola 2, which demonstrated a 50-second or so hop uh, and went, I think, to an altitude of about 178 uh, meters. And so that, again, is a demonstration of them wanting to push for more efficient launch capability. And they are actually on the hot seat, not just because of Starship, but because India also successfully launched a reusable prototype in April of this year. So India is breathing very hard on that particular market and China, India competes in space. I'll finally end by saying that one of the concerning uh, insights I got from a Georgetown University study looking at and comparing China and the U.S. in terms of tactically responsive launch systems so for your audience, a tactically responsive space launch system is an ability to very quickly replace your damaged or destroyed satellites in space in case in times of conflict they get destroyed. So, and I looked at other sources within China as well. And what I found out was that what is fascinating is that China is developing, uh, and they use this term again and again. This is not just with launch, but they use it for their cislunar capability. If you look at their entire structure for their International Lunar Research Station, it's about end-to-end space capacity with efficiency. So they're always repeating this. So in terms of tactically responsive space launch, they are building not just or pushing for not just liquid propelled rockets that require a very cumbersome support structure or ground infrastructure, but they're also at the same time developing rockets like the Long March 11, a solid propelled rocket that can actually be launched from mobile transporter erector launchers. So they can be launched from the from an ocean or from land and very quickly. Uh, the idea is that, let's take an example. If there's a Taiwan scenario where some satellites in the Chinese constellation gets destroyed, they want to have the resiliency to immediately replace it with launch systems that can be launched very quickly. So uh, I'll end there. To to further that a little bit more is that when we have rockets that require uh, liquefied gas as the propellant, right, or as the fuel for the rocket, that it requires an additional amount of infrastructure that isn't exactly mobile and that that additional infrastructure also incurs cost. Yes. Right. And so there's a really interesting, you know, as I say, you know, mutually reinforcing bit here of resiliency as well as economy that seemed to sort of jump out at me. Anyway, Brendan, what are you seeing with these two thematic priorities of resilient infrastructure and, you know, efficiency in a monetary kind of a way? Well, I mean, I think Naomi hit it right on the head that, uh, you know, they're trying to bring down the cost of launch, which really is what has enabled uh, not just China, but the entire space economy, right? It's just uh, over the last decade or so, the dramatic cost, uh, you know, decline to get stuff up into space to the point where you have, you know, um, uh, universities and college students actually putting payloads up because it's so affordable at this point. 
so as uh, all the commercial companies that she already listed, you know, continue to drive those things down and they leverage uh, commercial markets across the board, that's really what China is going to be interested in. Obviously, bringing that back home uh, to the Chinese market as best they can. Uh, but, you know, leveraging uh, all the commercial spaces that is going on uh, in Europe and Australia uh, and really just across the globe. So that's probably going to have the biggest impact. And and like you said, they're trying to get more uh, bang for the buck, no pun intended. Um, and we're seeing a pretty fierce competition across China, uh, not only for uh, the federal government, but also the provincial government level. There are tons and tons of, uh, you know, local governments and, and entities that want to get into space and are looking to fund it, but also don't have the big budgets that, you know, the PLA and the party do uh, at the national level. And so they're going to want to squeeze every bit they can out of it. Uh, and that's really one of those things that has gone, I think, underserviced, and especially in the U.S. media, is just paying attention to the the inter-China competition for space and space resources and companies. It's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things that I read in getting ready for today's discussion was the fact that Shanghai basically has, I think, two programs going for building satellite factories, if I'm not mistaken. There's going to be like a special area in Shanghai that's dedicated to space manufacturing. But to go on in that, you know, what I'd like to know from you guys, and Brendan, I'm going to start with you. What was the one China and space story that has really stuck with you this year? So I would say probably the biggest one was, and I, and I think Naomi kind of touched on it a little bit at the very beginning, so it's good we'll circle back around to it, uh, is the nascent but demonstrated on-orbit capability, right? So China launched, went out, grabbed one of its own satellites, uh, but was able to, you know, uh, find it, fix it, track it down, trace it down, uh, grab a hold of it and take it up to a graveyard orbit uh, and then come back down. Uh, so this demonstrates a capability and a capacity uh, in a way that, you know, China portrays as being helpful because it was cleaning up what we would call space junk, um, which is certainly true and is going to be a, you know, a bigger and bigger problem as more satellites go up, especially those that uh, can't be refueled on orbit. Uh, there's going to be more and more debris over the next, you know, coming decades, and that's going to be a huge problem. But also, uh, it clearly demonstrates the capability uh, that isn't necessarily always going to be so benign. Uh, they did it to theirs, but that doesn't mean they can't do it to any other one they want. Uh, it is hard. It requires space situational awareness. Uh, it requires the capability and the capacity to go out and find these things, track them down and grab a hold of them uh, and a willingness to do it. And I think that, uh, you know, the the demonstration by China to do this uh, and to expend uh, all of that Delta V, right, all of the fuel and the energy needed to do all of that uh, demonstrates that China is willing and able. Uh, they are developing uh, techniques, techniques, sorry, tactics, techniques and procedures to be able to do this. Uh, and again, demonstrated it uh, to the world, showing a uh, an ability and uh, and again, the will to be able to do it. So that really, I think, has done uh, made the biggest impression on me. I tend to think that this is one of those things that is going to change the nature of warfare in space um, uh, in the not too distant future. Uh, our space expert at Cassie, Cassie Kristen Burke, just did a huge paper on PLA counter space. She and I have a little bit different opinion on how big a threat this will be in the future. Certainly it isn't today, but in the future it could be going forward. But it goes back to what Amy was talking about with the space plane and the launch into these things uh, and the, you know, the nesting of satellites and, and on-orbit servicing. 
uh, and one one man's on orbit gas station could very well be another man's uh, on orbit, you know, suicide satellite. So that was the thing that uh, stuck out to me. Uh, and a great shout out to our friends at XO Analytic for pr- providing some amazing, amazing uh, commercially available uh, information on on what happened and showing uh, all all the aspects of what China did. And Namrata, what what yeah, what so- story stood out for you? Yeah, I'll continue with what Brendan said because he covered it so well. But I am so I would add to that and say that the story that stood out for me is this uh, China's willingness and desire to project their space capability to the world. One is, of course, their Tiangong Space Station extension. Uh, the fact that they are so bullish now about their Long March 9 rocket, but also in terms of their desire to build large platforms. Uh, and their space plane. I think this is all about space power demonstration. And you can see reactions because of that. India is now thinking about turning its air force into the air and space forces. And one of the reasons I would suspect is because of China's very advanced space capability. But the story that stood out for me was this particular experiment. So it's really important when you think about space uh, in terms of what are the ideas that are generating in the Chinese ecosystem and what are the long-term implications of that. So this year, uh, what is interesting is that Chinese scientists experimented on the construction of a large platform in low Earth orbit that would be populated by hundreds of CubeSats, not very different from the six satellites they put out through their space plane which in their experiment would be guided by artificial intelligence to make decisions real time in case there are adversary satellites that they need to counter or deter, or they need to do a more benign activity like space debris removal. So in that particular project, what was interesting was that it was asserted that these particular platform, the big orbital platform with CubeSats, would be AI-based decision-making on determining a threat or an opportunity. But more interestingly, it would have dual capability. And they were not shy about saying that. Usually, they're very careful in insisting that their civilian capability is only civilian. But the Chinese scientists were very willing to say that this will have both economic, for example, cleaning up the environment in space, if I may, and second, to be able to have superior capability in a space battle. So that really stood out for me. Uh, their space power projection capability, uh, willingness to do it, and the ideas that they are generating this year. So what should we all be looking out for in 2024? What is China aiming to achieve in the next year? Nami, why don't you go? Yeah, I think two things that we need to look out for. One is the continuous, as Brandon was mentioning, continuous investment and development of their military space capability, uh, which includes ground stations to low Earth orbit capability to cislunar space, where they are actually going to launch their second relay satellite next year. And that's the second thing that we need to think about, that all their civilian capabilities are connected to their large end-to-end space resilience system, right? And so that's... Now explain what that satellite does and where it's going to be. So they hope to put it in uh, Lagrange Point 2, I think, uh, in the Hello Orbit. And this is basically going to help in terms of relay communication with the Chang'er 6 that they're going to launch next year to the Lunar South Pole. 
So this is going to be the first attempt by any nation. India landed on the Southern Hemisphere, about 600 kilometers from the South Pole. Uh, China hopes to land much more closer and to bring samples back. So that's going to be a major achievement, the first nation to be able to do it if they successfully achieve that purpose. And Brendan, what are you looking for in 2024? Uh, what I'm looking forward to, and we're paying attention to it, maybe are two different things, but I think uh, uh, any kind of demonstrated capabilities, Naomi was talking about, about uh, on-orbit production. Uh, I think this really will have a huge impact on what uh, China and, you know, any spacefaring nation is going to be able to to do if they can make some of those fundamental breakthroughs. One is just the cost of getting stuff up into space, right? But if you can, if you can construct things in space, uh, you really do change that you, you break that cost curve, right? You break it really, really hard. Uh, and then all of a sudden, all these things that we didn't think were going to be possible uh, potentially become possible in the future. And that goes for commercial, scientific, uh, as well as military. So that's really where I'm looking uh, to watch and see, you know, if China or or really anyone else for that matter uh, is able to uh, to demonstrate that capability. Uh, because once that happens, you know, it's uh, it's certainly going to change the entire landscape of what is possible from space. Thank you both so much for joining me for the last episode of 2023. And I hope to have you guys both on again really soon. Well, thank you for having us, Laura, on your award-winning podcast. So, and happy holidays. I paid you for that, right? (laughs) (laughs) We should. Yeah, this is uh, this has been great, uh, and, uh, and like I said, a great way to kind of wrap up the year and uh, highlight all that China has done in space because it's been uh, it's been a busy year for them and it's been a busy year for us. And I think that uh, everyone's just going to run a little bit faster in 2024. So, looking forward to it, and uh, definitely looking forward to get back on your podcast uh, sometime next year. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.